If you haven't figured it out by now, today is Transfiguration Sunday. And it is a, it is a hinge Sunday from the season of Epiphany, which comes right after the 12 days of Easter, up to today, after which we move into the season of Lent, taking us toward Holy Week and Easter. And this, this hand swings around Jesus' whole purpose, from his birth and his baptism and his beginning ministry, all of his healing and preaching and feeding of thousands and casting out demons and all of the, quote, fame that he was gathering along the way. And what it, what it does for us is it gives us a glimpse of the essence of who Jesus is as both divine and human. A glimpse that can only be looked at briefly and from askance. But it also gives Jesus a glimpse and a word from God that God would be with him for his trek down the mountain toward the cross. Right before this passage, in fact, Jesus makes his first announcement to his disciples that he will have to go to Jerusalem and suffer, be crucified, killed, then rise again. But not until then had the disciples had any idea that that was part of Jesus' sermon. And not even then did they understand what it meant, nor even believe it. So as we stand right in this hinge point between Christmas and Epiphany and the coming of Lent, let us remember that at the end of it, there is a cross and an empty tomb. Hear now this text as it comes to us from Gospel of Mark, verses, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man, that is Jesus, had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. This is the word of the Lord. 
Oh God, we pray that your light will enlighten us to your way and word in Jesus and your way and word in us, in Christ's name, amen. Tradition holds that it was Mount Tabor that they climbed. It is about a 2,000 foot mountain, about 400 feet higher than Stone Mountain. It was not an easy hike up the mountain, probably took them about an hour. They ascended as they went, James and John and Peter, led by Jesus. Wasn't it James and John and Simon and Andrew who were the first four disciples picked, yet here is just James and John and Peter. What happened to Andrew? It puzzles me because Andrew, you really don't hear from Andrew again in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels. He plays a bigger role in Luke, I mean, in, in the Gospel of John. But Andrew just sort of takes a back seat and it leaves me wondering what happened to him. I think Peter, being kind of who he is, didn't, you know, it's like this sibling rivalry thing. I don't know. I'm just making this up because I know I have brothers. And, you know, you're always looking for, for stardom. And so Peter probably, you know, being who Peter was, kind of edged Andrew out of the picture. And so, who knows? I don't know why. But it was James and John and Peter who went up the mountain with Jesus. And it was James and John and Peter who, in the end, went with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane that when told to stay awake, all fell asleep. Maybe they were his favorites, I don't know. Whatever the fact, all of a sudden, as they're on top of the mountain, this light comes, like a thousand million spotlights right on Jesus. His light turns whiter than the Ajax, uh, you know, man can make them. And, and, and they're transfixed on this moment. Uh, and then they see that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking together. And Moses is the father of the law. And Elijah was the first prophet, the father of the prophets. So they're getting a sense of this is the whole story gathered together. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. But they don't know what it's about. And, and, and they really don't know what to do. So Simon Peter, being who he is, blurts out, God, it's good to be here. Actually, he didn't feel that way. He was scared to death. So let's do something. Let's make three tents. And about that time, a cloud comes and overshadows them. And from that cloud, a voice had to be like, I mean, I imagine it like James Earl Jones' voice. <laughs> this is my beloved son. Listen to him. But it could have been a feminine voice. It doesn't say. And just as suddenly, after the voice, Moses and Elijah are gone. The bright lights are gone. The sound of God is gone. And they're left standing up there with Jesus having no idea what happened or what it meant. Was it a dream? A vision? They were clueless. Knowing this, Jesus knowing this, that they had no idea what it meant, on the way down the mountain, Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about it. 
until he had risen from the dead, which only left them more confused. What does rising from the dead mean? Don't we understand those disciples so clueless about Jesus and who he is and the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim? He comes on the scene from Nazareth, Nowheresville, it's, it's Hardyville, proclaiming the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And they didn't know that the time Jesus was talking about was Kairos time, as I said last week. Infinity time, not finite time. Kairos time, God's time, not Kronos time, our time. They didn't know that. They just thought Jesus had come like the second Messiah had been promised. And when he says that the kingdom of God has come, they thought it would be like the kingdom of God that King David had some 900 years earlier. And everything Jesus did in his ministry to begin with seemed to support that. He goes by a boat with two fishermen in one and two fishermen in another, and he looks at them and calls them to follow, and they jump out of the boat and follow like that. He walks into the synagogue. He runs into a bunch of people. He begins to teach them, and some guy with a demon, an evil spirit, starts screaming at Jesus, and Jesus tells him to sit down and shut up and then exercises the demon out of the man. It's all about, it's all about this kind of Davidic messianic power. And from there they leave the synagogue and they go to Peter's and Andrew's house and find that Peter and Andrew's mother is sick in bed and Jesus walks into her room and breaks all the Sabbath and taboo laws in the world and reaches his hand out and grabs her by the hand and pulls her up and she's immediately healed and then she gets up on the Sabbath and begins to prepare dinner and serve them. Jesus always knew that the law of love overshadowed all the laws of Sabbath keeping, but... He seemed to be one of the few. On and on and on, as you read this, this is just the first chapter. Jesus is healing people. Healing people such that they're all gathered around the door, around Peter's house. He can't even get room to get in or out. He heals as many as he can. He finally goes to sleep. He sneaks out at 4 o'clock in the morning to go to the mountaintop to have prayer time with God. He's exhausted. And he knows, he knows that the more people he heals, the more he is inflating this idea that Jesus is the Messiah everyone was waiting for, the political, military Messiah that would make Israel great again and free them from the hands of the Roman Empire. And Jesus knew that wasn't why he had come. For the rest of the time up to chapter 9, Jesus is healing people, exercising demons, teaching people, fighting arguments against the Pharisees and the religious authorities. Over and over again, the crowds only grow larger. He fed 5,000 one time, he fed 4,000 another time. He's going all over the district of Galilee where enemies were supposed to be Sadducees. No, excuse me, um, uh, um, all the way over to Gentile area, uh, Tyre and Sidon, um, 
It didn't matter. Jesus wanted everybody to know race, creed, color, nationality, that God had come to them, bringing the kingdom of God, which was for them, a kingdom of God that Jesus knew would be heard as good news when it was finally understood. And everywhere he went, he drew crowds. And everywhere he drew crowds, he left as fast as he could because he knew what that meant. They would misunderstand him. Who are you? Somebody asked. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And his disciples say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah or one of the prophets. But who do you say I am? And Peter, usually the first to speak impulsively, said, you're the Messiah. Then Jesus sternly ordered him not to tell anybody. But then when he began to teach that the Messiah, the Son of Man must go through great suffering and be rejected by the Jewish leaders, the priests and scribes, and be killed and three days rise again, Peter rebuked him. As strong a word as you can find. Rebuked him. But Jesus turned around and rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you were setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now chastened, Jesus calls everyone over and begins to tell them that if anybody wants to follow him, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. For those who save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life will save it. So here they are thinking that Jesus is this powerful Messiah that's going to save them from all their problems, fix all their uh, ills and brokenness, resolve all their everything. And now Jesus is telling them that they're going to have to lose their life and pick up a cross and follow. But it still didn't sink in. Preachers don't like to preach these kinds of sermons because most people want to hear something that has impact. It's going to build us up and lighten us up and free us up and, and fix us and impact with all. Jesus. If you let Jesus Christ come into your life, everything's going to be right and good. People love that. But when the Bible says and the preacher gets up and talks about you're going to have to pick up a cross, mm. we want Jesus to come into our lives and make an impact, an impact on the world, beating away all the forces of darkness and evil, and, which means anybody that doesn't agree with us, and make things good again. But according to the Bible, what Jesus came into the world to do was to proclaim the kingdom of God had come near. And that kingdom was a kingdom of love and forgiveness and enlightenment of who we are and who God is and a relationship that is now tethered 
by the life and death of Jesus Christ so that nothing we can do in this world can separate us from God's love. That's what the kingdom of God is about. While it heals us in the soul sense, that doesn't always heal us in the physical sense. I didn't understand the word impact, really. Um, it's come to mind recently, several times. I'm not sure if I mentioned, but I'm one of many of the non-profit uh, groups on this Glen County Brown Table of Nonprofits, and we met three weeks ago to try to figure out what our mission, values, and, vir and, uh, uh, and vision statement was gonna be. And I was on the mission team, and, and before we went out, uh, uh, Kiva Case, who's now the head of the Community Foundation of Glen County, said, can I just ask a question that when y'all do the mission that nobody uses the word impact? And everybody laughed, said, why? Said, that's been overused since 1984 as the big watchword for what people are gonna do in their mission statement. We're going to have an impact, he said. Well, an impact is about when an asteroid hits a planet. An impact is about an earthquake or a pandemic. Impacts are usually not good. An impact is what happens when a fist hits a face. There are much better words than impact. And I began to think about it. He's absolutely right. The first iconic Apple commercial in 1984 at the Super Bowl was about George Orwell's 1984. It had an impact. What did it do? It changed the way everybody else started doing commercials during Super Bowls. That's not the kind of impact Jesus had in mind. In fact, I think Jesus didn't like the word impact either because what impact does is it gets a lot of people excited and they all line up to be a part of this impactful moment and Jesus didn't want everybody lined up to be a part of the impactful moment. In fact, Jesus knew that whatever it is that calls us to that, that's promising an impact, get behind me, Satan. Don't trust it. All that glitters is not gold. Yet everybody wanted it. Make an impact. And he always turned his back because he knew that the message that he had was a message of hope to bring a new kind of kingdom into the world. A kingdom not based on kings as we know it, but on loss and suffering and even death of the old self. And it does not come from an impactful act of power, but instead from the slow and steady love and suffering of serving. Ooh. Really? Isn't there a pill? Like some impactful pill I can take? Isn't there, isn't there like some one verse I can read? Isn't there like some one sermon I can hear? Can you just give me something that will impact my life enough to change it? I've been in this conversation with a friend of mine who um, he, uh, he's got all kinds of problems. Uh, he, he's got plenty of money. He bought a mountain in the North Carolina uh, mountains uh, because in Jacksonville, he, he's got some 
um, germophobia issues and he's OCD and he moved his wife and daughter up to this mountain that he bought and they were kind of getting lonely up there but he was happy as a clam because he didn't have to deal with anybody and COVID comes and he always already liked to drink a lot but when COVID came he drank non-stop and about six months ago his wife said I can't do it anymore so she left him and he's been calling me four times a day if more for the last two months because you can only talk now to me or his brother and I said to him um, she's not coming back I'm willing to stop drinking I'll get sober if she'll come back I said that's not the deal you get sober period whether she comes back or not you're a jerk he says that's why you call me What am I supposed to do? Get sober. Then you can get more well. Then you can get off of your mountain by yourself. Then you can get back into life and start doing something for somebody else and not think so much about yourself. But I love her. A lot of people lose wives. A lot of people get divorced. A lot of people are widowed. But I love her. I'll always love her. I know that. But you have to get off the mountain and you have to get sober. And what I, what I dream of you doing, the preacher in me, what I dream of you doing is getting down on your knees and opening yourself up to a higher power than yourself and asking that higher power to come into your life to give you the strength to do what you need to do. And he said, there is no higher power than me. I'm my own higher power. And I said, okay, so where has that gotten you? <laughs> By yourself on a mountain with nobody to talk to but me, and your brother. You're a jerk, he said. He wants an impact. He doesn't want to have to go through the grueling work of grief and sobriety and dealing with his OCD and all the other things that he knows he's going to have to step by step by step in order to get better. He wants an impact. Jesus says, don't trust it. Don't trust it. It's hard. It takes time. It's a discipline. You know, it strikes me that this church understands that. There are many, many successful people in this church in many ways. I'm not talking about money or business, just in being human. And almost in every case, you understand this. I think you know that the preacher that's going to be called here sooner or later, and I don't know that there's anywhere closer, or I know nothing about it, but I just, I think you know that the preacher that will be called here will not be someone that stands up here and makes an impact on you in such a way that you're giddy. Because only until that preacher loves you and serves you and cares for you and becomes one like you 
Will there be any kind of relationship that matters? You've had good training in this with preacher John Law and Bob Rearley and Alan. Just preparing you. Don't expect some golden boy or girl to get up here to wow you. Don't trust it. It's personally relational that matters. And everywhere Jesus went, that's what he avoided, the impact effect for the relationship effect. Bright lights blind us. The light of God opens our eyes. Let us pray. Oh God, we pray that our hearts be illumined by your love, that our bodies be illumined by and strengthened by your faith, and that our spirits find your presence ever near in the love of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors. <clears throat>